Please be seated. I just want to add my thanks to the veterans um, that are here. And uh, I, did, I did not have the privilege of serving in the military. My parents and uncles did. And uh, my first real exposure to the military was when we served a church in Lakewood, Washington in the, in the 80s and early 90s. We were close to Fort Lewis and, and McCord Air Force Base. And uh, we got to know some of the most outstanding young men and women that I've ever known. Amazing people. And it's not just the sacrifice on the battlefield. They sacrifice by being deployed for months at a time. They, we had special forces guys that were out, and their, their wives and families didn't even know where they were. They told these incredible stories, and they'd say, I can't tell you where this happened, or I'd have to shoot you. But that's what it was. Um, some people, incredible sacrifices that, that they uh, have undertaken. So thank you for your service and uh, what you've sacrificed so that we can have freedoms like this and meet freely. And uh, please never take that for granted. So this is a time. If you know a serviceman or you saw one of those that stood today, just thank them after the service, would you? Several years ago, I watched a television program called Risking It All. On this program were documented video stories of risk. One was a young man who rode his bike over a 2,000-foot cliff in Brazil wearing a parachute, which he opened after a long freefall. That's risk. Another was a guy who jumped out of a helicopter without a parachute, about 100 feet above a narrow butte which soared 1,000 feet above the canyon floor, and he landed on an air-filled pad. That's risk. Risk is the rage today. We have extreme sports like ice climbing, rock climbing, extreme skateboarding, hang gliding, extreme skiing. Activities like bungee jumping, cliff jumping, bridge diving, skydiving, stunt bicycling, motorcycle stunting, high wire walking, you name it. Risk, and of course the question is, isn't life dangerous enough already the way it is? Everyone has a certain threshold of risk. Some people like the excitement of lots of risk. Others will do everything possible to avoid risk. But life, just life by itself, carries risks of its own like just walking across the street to your mailbox. I did that one day while living in Lakewood, Washington. As I turned my back and walked towards my mailbox, a car came past me at a high rate of speed and came so close to me that the passenger side mirror brushed my jacket. I was so angry I chased after them. Now, I don't know what was more risky, almost getting hit by a car or an angry Norwegian on foot chasing two guys in a, in a car, but regardless. <laughs> Whether it's driving down the freeway, eating at a restaurant, putting your money in a hedge fund, there's risk. Some like risk, and some do not like risk. All of us have times in our life where we must risk. Some would call it taking chances or facing the unknown. Others would say it's going forward without knowing the future, or it's an action taken by faith. Well, today we're going to talk about risk. Risk. We're going to look at a group of people who wanted absolutely no risk, and a man who risked much. Today, the risk of reach, and I'd like you to turn with me to Luke 6, Luke the 6th chapter. Luke the 6th chapter, starting with verse 6, I'm going to read this story in the life of Jesus. 
On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. We're going to look at four attitudes that the Pharisees, teachers of the law, and the religious people had towards risk, and five risks that the man took. And I hope you can identify somewhere in this story with one of the characters that we have today. Starting with the Pharisees, teachers of the law. Four attitudes towards risk that they had. These were the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they were what we would call the established church. And we find, first of all, that they did not want to risk change. Change. See, change carries risk. They didn't want to risk change in their ways of thinking, their behavior, their rules of life. They didn't care about the man with the handicap. They were comfortable with their rules, their regulations, their rituals and traditions. They had a system, and everything fit in its right place. That system was called tradition. Tradition. Now, tradition isn't necessarily bad unless it keeps us from needed change. How many of you are familiar or have seen the musical or the movie Fiddler on the Roof? Okay. Yeah, this. I, <laughs> there we go. We got an uh, illustration here. Would you like to sing the rest of it? No, I'm just <laughs> Fiddler on the Roof. The main character's name is Tevya. He's a Jewish father who is steeped in tradition. And his daughter, as the story moves on, begins to resist tradition. She does not want to marry the man that her parents chose for her. She wanted instead to marry somebody that she actually loved and knew and fell in love with. Says, we've never done it that way before. And of course, being the father of two daughters, I always liked the idea of arranged marriages. My daughters, eh, not so much. So Tevia's daughter was advocating change, and change brought risks. Tradition is safe. Change is kind of dangerous at times. Some of you may be familiar with the story that illustrates this point. There was a family that got together every Thanksgiving for dinner, and we're all getting ready to come together for Thanksgiving. Most of us have certain types of traditions or foods or activities that we associate with holidays. And this particular family, what they like to do is have ham for dinner. It was a family tradition. But before cooking the ham, they always cut off the ends of the ham. One of the children, curious, asked, why do you cut off the ends of the ham before cooking it? Her mother answered, well, I don't know. Mom always did it that way. Well, since they were all together, she asked her mom, why did you cut off the ends of the ham before cooking it? She answered, I don't know. Grandma always did that. So they went to find Grandma. She was reading stories to the children. Well, both the mother and daughter returned to the kitchen with a sheepish look and answered, Grandma always cut the ends of the ham off because her pan was too small. <laughs> Tradition. It's safe. It carries no risk. requires no thinking. 
And in our story today, as we look at this, these people were more concerned about tradition than people. They wanted to keep their laws. Their concern for the law was fine, but the tradition that they added to the law was where the problem was. Of all the laws handed down by Moses, they laid the most stress on keeping of the Sabbath. If you violated Sabbath law, according to the Mishnah, you could be stoned. And the Jews had established a complicated series of ordinances. One of those was if you dragged a chair across the room on the Sabbath, you would part the dust, and it was defined as plowing, which was forbidden work on the Sabbath. Can you imagine? So how are we with change? Are we afraid to risk change? Are our traditions more important to us than people? There's a book that we're reading as a staff and a board. And if you want to read it, look it up. It's called Deep and Wide, written by Andy Stanley. Deep means the church needs to be deep and it needs to be wide as far as reaching people. And the subtitle is Creating Churches Unchurched People Love to Attend. Creating Churches Unchurched People Love to Attend. And the question is, how do we measure up? What can we do so that unchurched people, the unchurched people actually feel comfortable coming into this building? We expect unchurched people to come into this religious-looking building, into a lobby we call an arthex, into an auditorium we call a sanctuary, ask them to sit on benches we call pews, sing 17th century music in King James English and call them hymns, accompanied by an instrument they've never heard called an organ, and we expect them to come back. Did you ever think of that? We say things like, welcome to ECC, or Come to FX or turn over in your Bibles. Has anybody ever known what it's like to turn over in your Bible? How, how do you do that? Turn over in your Bible. Or please put all your contact information in that blue book and pass it down the road for everybody to see. Oh boy. I'm meddling now. If, you're, if, you're, if you know everybody in your row, that's no big deal. But if you're new, do you want... You want to do that? We, we just need to think, what does an unchurched person feel like when they come in here? What do they see? What do they experience? And are our traditions more important than welcoming unchurched? Last year, we were in Wichita, Kansas, as an, as in an interim position, and we, we had this great summer outreach called basketball camp, and many, many unchurched kids would come to this, and at the end of the, end of the week, we had an awards ceremony Sunday, and so we had all these unchurched kids that were sitting in the front rows of the church, and one of the things that was really interesting I was watching is, is we got to the point that we were going to take the offering, and I remember watching some of the kids as there are, there's this offering plate full of cash, and we did say take the offering, and so it's going in front of them with cash, and I, they looked at it like, am I supposed to take something? I mean, you said take the, I, I mean, they didn't know what to do. Well, we just take for granted, everybody knows what to do. No, no, unchurched, they may not know. And so it's one of those things you say, how do we, how do we navigate this? People are more important than traditions. And we want to lower the barriers to the unchurched of the spiritually seeking people because tradition can keep people from coming to Christ. So how do we deal with change? My music, my schedule, my system. Our message is changeless. Our methods must constantly change. Now you guys know what happened when Windows came out and it was 3.1 and then 4.7, you know, it keeps changing the numbers. And, and if you don't keep up, pretty soon your computer doesn't work. 
Okay, same thing, iPhone, I have an iPhone, they keep up upgrading this thing and pretty soon it won't work unless I do the latest upgrade and blah, you know, change is constant. The technology is the same, the change is constant. So these men did not want to risk change. Secondly, they did not want to risk appearances. They were more concerned about externals and, than the internal. They wanted to look good, don't we all? We all want to look good. But what people could see was more important than what they could not see. Actions were more important than attitude, the outside, not the inside. Heart issues, what was really going on inside a person was unimportant to them. Pleasing God had become what they did, not what they were on the inside. Now, I've spent time, time studying the revival and spiritual wakings, and one such revival occurred in 1904 to 1905 in Wales, in the British Isles. And at this time in history, there was a lot of moral corruption. There was gambling and prostitution, alcoholism, addictions, and all kinds of crime. And some of this lifestyle included such evils as dancing, playing cards, and going to the theater. Okay? Now, when God changed the hearts of thousands of people, literally, as they converted to faith in Jesus Christ, they quit doing all those evil things. Internal heart change resulted in external action change. The lifestyle changed after the heart changed. This new lifestyle then became traditional values. Now, the next generation, these people's children, grew up with these traditional values. Then they took the things that the Christians did not do and created a whole new religion. And I say new religion because these external negatives that don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance, don't gamble, don't go to the theater, etc., became the measure of their religion. All the things the new Christians did not do and quit doing, the next generation incorporated into their Christianity and said, these prohibitions are part of our faith. They therefore created a list of external actions that dictated who was in and who was out, who was a Christian, who wasn't. Externals became the, the measure of righteousness and they forced externals to become internals. The result was legalism, lists of do's and don'ts. Christianity became defined by what we don't do and what we do, not by who we are. If you grew up in this type of environment, we measured spirituality by what we didn't do. And I'm more spiritual than you do because I don't do more things than you don't do. You get that? I'm more spiritual than you because I don't do more things than you don't do. More concerned about looking good than doing good and being good. It's not what we do, it's who we be. That's bad English. Bad, that's bad grammar. It's not what we do, it's who we be. Bad grammar, but poignant message. The Sabbath day, back to the text, was for physical rest, yes, but it was instituted by God to rest from labor in order to give themselves to God in worship. Rest for worship, internal heart reason. So these guys didn't want to risk appearances. Thirdly, they did not want to risk love. They didn't want to risk love. Love demands risks, and these guys were unbelievable. In their lack of love for this man, they were plotting to murder Jesus. Which was more sinful, breaking the Sabbath or watching Jesus with intent to commit murder? I mean, hello? They could not see the contradiction. Interesting passage, 1 Corinthians 13. Many of you are aware of it. 1 Corinthians 13, called the love chapter. And it says this, 
If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. So I can have all the religious actions, I can have all the religious knowledge, I can even have great faith in God, I can even sacrifice all I have for other people. But if I don't have love, I am nothing, zero, nada. Are we willing to risk love? Loving people who are different, who are unlovable, who are unattractive, people who are just messed up. People who do evil, destructive things. People who have handicaps of all types, visible, invisible, maybe dysfunction, brokenness. Are we willing to risk love? And fourth, they did not want to risk thinking the best. Thinking the best. They were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. Thinking the best is a risk. There's the positive and the negative. Looking for something wrong, always reading the worst into a situation. Now, if you've been burned or betrayed, Thinking the worst is kind of this natural defense. Oh, I've seen this before. You know, you just put the, put the defenses up and you think the worst. But do we think the worst? Do we look to accuse? Do we put the worst light on a situation? These guys had not come to church to worship God. They had come to accuse Jesus. Negative, negative, negative. You know, our world is so full of negative. You can't watch the news. It's interesting, you watch news, it's all negative, and you get this little two-minute thing at the end that talks about something that was good in the community. And there's nothing else. It's all negative, negative, negative. We're just inundated with negative. And when there's negative, we just need positive, positive, positive. We've got to be positive. These guys didn't want to risk change, appearances, love, or even thinking the best. So what about the man with the withered hand? Maybe you can identify with him today. What did he risk? There are five risks the man took. The first one was the risk of worship. This man had come to the synagogue on the Sabbath most likely just to worship God. He had a real desire to worship, to have the courage to come to the to synagogue. People with handicaps and deformities were, perf- were frowned upon if they came into this synagogue. For this man to worship, he had to forget about himself and abandon himself to God. One critical element of worship is forgetting about ourselves and abandoning ourselves to God. Self-consciousness replaced with God-consciousness. See, they didn't have handicapped parking, specially designed buildings. The handicapped were viewed as accursed. But this man came anyway. He came anyway because his heart was one of worship. He did not come to be healed. He did not come to the synagogue or to the temple or to the church to get anything. He came to give adoration and praise. He was just there to worship. Why do we come, why do we come to church? To get something for ourselves or just to worship God? True worship is a risk because it's an abandoning of self, forgetting self, and focusing on God. There's a prominent pastor's wife that I will not name that said something that was very interesting. She said, and I quote, she said, when we obey God, we're not doing it for God, we're doing it for ourselves because God takes pleasure when we're happy. 
When you come to church, when you worship him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy. Are you kidding me? Seriously? That's the problem with the American church today. We think it's all about our happiness. It's not. It's not about us. It's about God. Do we come to church to make us happy? Do we come to church to be seen by other people? We don't want people to miss us, to relieve guilt. Maybe the pastor will send me an email if I'm gone. Do we come to worship God, to touch God or be touched by God? That's the question. Do we abandon self and, and abandon ourselves to God? The second risk is a risk of handicapped. This man had a withered hand, probably not congenital, but probably the result of an injury or accident. Maybe muscular atrophy, but it was called shriveled. And whatever the handicap, it was a visible handicap, something everybody could see. In spite of this handicap, he came out in public where the risk of embarrassment was there. He, he could be seen about it. Now, many of us have the risk of handicaps. It might be physical or, or visible. Most likely, it's internal or invisible. It's something in our past, or there's guilt, or there's fear, or there's, there's been abuse, or there's psychological issues, or spiritual, emotional issues, social issues, scars of handicaps. It's a risk to reveal to anyone that we have some kind of a need or handicap. But without the risk of revelation, there would never have been the miraculous healing. Closely related is the third risk, the risk of admitting need. The risk of admitting need. This man knew he had a problem. No one had to tell him. And the question for all of us today is, are you willing to admit need? What area of your life is withered right now? Is it, is it a relationship? Is it a family life? Is it marriage? Is it ongoing sin that you're dealing with, spiritual walk, your prayer life? We must see our need, sometimes reveal our need in order to be healed. That's risky. That's very risky. Some people are well aware of their needs. Others are not. It's very interesting. There was a church that was a good church. And it's referenced in the book of Revelation, the third chapter. It's a church in Laodicea. And this is what John wrote to them. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. These are the words of Jesus. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Wow. Passionless, apathetic, lukewarm, wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, and don't even realize it. There's a risk for admitting need. The fourth risk the man took is the risk of faith. Verse 8, Jesus said, get up and stand in front of everyone. This man responded in faith. He responded in trust. He stood in front of everyone with an attitude of expectancy. See, faith carries risks. And God says to you, take your friend to lunch and share your faith. Oh, risk. Give me a tithe or 10% and I will bless you. Risk. Operate your business with integrity and godly principles. Risk. Give up your job and start a business. Risk. Leave your occupation and go into missions. Risk. 
Or there's the expectancy of praying for your family members who don't know Jesus. There's a risk of faith. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. What risk of faith is God asking you to take today? And this is for the whole church. What risks of faith is God asking Eau Claire Wesleyan to take? Or do we have to see everything first? Change carries risk. Then Jesus asked a question of the people standing around verse 9. He said, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, save a life or to destroy it? Jesus gave the Pharisees a chance to speak. This is kind of like at a wedding. How many of you at your wedding allowed the pastor or person performing the ceremony say, if there's anybody here that objects to this, speak now or forever hold your peace? How many of you had that in your wedding ceremony? Courageous people, we did not. No, we didn't. I was afraid some idiot ex-boyfriend would show up. You know, I didn't know what was going to happen. <laughs> it's one of those, those silent moments and you go, I hope nobody says anything. Well, this is one of those moments. He gave the Pharisees a chance, a chance to speak. And of course they didn't. There was no response. Not only did this man risk admitting need, a risk of faith, but the ultimate risk of reach is the risk of obedience. The risk of obedience. You say, I can't obey, it's impossible. Jesus makes the impossible possible. But you don't know how withered my life is right now. You don't know how impossible my situation. No, I don't. I don't have to know. Jesus knows. His mission impossible. God's plan to save the planet includes and necessitates doing the impossible. We just obey. We just obey. For this man, it was not a case of waiting to obey until there was a consciousness of healing, but obedience to God's command before the fact. Jesus said to him, stretch out your hand. By an action of the will, by faith, this man may have tried many times to stretch out his own hand. It was impossible. He had tried on his own. Was Jesus mocking him? Was Jesus going to humiliate him? Was everyone going to laugh nervously when nothing happened? No. Through an act of his will, in a risk of reach, contact was made with the power of the living God. The power resident in the words of Jesus and the command, stretch out your hand. Behind that command was all the power in the entire universe. The words that said, let there be light, and there was light. The words that spoke and it was into, came into being. And Jesus says to you today, stretch out your hand, obey. Stretch out your withered hand. Stretch that part of you out that's in desperate need. And you may have tried and tried to fix it yourself and failed. You say it's impossible. In the face of impossible, I challenge you to obey and stretch out your hand. Jesus says, give me your withered hands, your handicaps, your marriage, your needs, your fears, your pain, your suffering, your sorrow, your weaknesses, your inabilities. Let me restore you to full health. The risk of reach. All the power in the universe is behind that command, the words, the person, the mercy, and the power, because this man was face to face with Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He was instantly healed. 
Disease had to flee in the presence of the healer. Jesus could not witness disease without removing it. Disease could not continue in the presence of him who was life. Do you have a withered hand today? Whatever part of your life that represents, risk that reach of faith, the risk of reach. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give real-life examples of people in need. And we just pray, Lord Jesus, that you would continue to build our faith. Father, there are people here today, this morning, that, that have, have needs. And I just pray, Lord Jesus, that you would build their faith and that they would respond, knowing that when we pray in the presence of Jesus... You answer prayer. So we pray, Lord Jesus, this morning that you would speak to our hearts. We're going to take just a minute. We're going to stand in a minute. And I'm going to invite leaders to come and stand, board members to stand and pray. If you have a prayer request, something that you need prayer for, and it may be standing in for somebody else.